we're in a study of the patriarchs of Israel, and we're in the last, and he's really technically not a patriarch. He's the son of patriarch. It's Joseph. And uh, I want to pick up with verse, uh, well, the section is in verse 6, but summarize for you where we are. I think everybody's been around. I don't have to do any significant summary. But Joseph is in Egypt. He's the second most powerful man, presumably, in Egypt. The, the Pharaoh Sestoris II. And the ten brothers have come down to Egypt for uh, food because there's a famine in the land in the entire eastern Mediterranean. So with all of that, um, Joseph now has set up a series of tests for his brothers. You will see in a minute there are four tests. And um, the first one we'll see here in just a second. But um, what what Joseph had said in chapter 37 through his dream, you guys are going to bow down to me, has occurred. We read about that last week. And this extraordinary, uh, almost boastful declaration by him is now fulfilled in space-time history. But Joseph is doing something else here. I mean, if we look at it in two ways, I suppose. One, God is using Joseph to get his brothers to have their conscience sensitized, to own up to their horrific sin of selling him into slavery and uh, lying to their father, deceiving their father, Jacob, and so on. But I think also it's to, it's a test for Joseph's sake in the sense that, can I really trust my brothers? If I am going to be reconciled to my brothers, which I think ultimately he wants to be, because he wants to see his father, Jacob, he's heard that from his brothers, he's asked about his father. Joseph wants to test them, their faithfulness, their loyalty, and in a sense, their loyalty to God, ultimately. So his charge, if you recall, his charge is that they are spies. Now, that's ludicrous, but that's what he's saying, because one of the things that Egypt was very conscious of was all of the various tribal groups to the east of them, which goes all the way over to Mesopotamia, were always testing the vulnerabilities of Egypt. And I mean, that is what spies really do. Where where is our enemy vulnerable? What can we use to maximize and leverage those vulnerabilities? That's what he's saying of them. So his tests, from their perspective are, his tests are to show them, him, that they're not spies. His reason for going through these tests with them is to sensitize their conscience, uh, discover their loyalty both to him and ultimately to God, and in a sense to their father. So, in verse, let me look at verse 12 and kind of pick up there. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. That's testing our vulnerability and where we're, we're vulnerable. They said, we are your servant, our 12 brothers, the sons of one man, land of Canaan. Behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as, you, as I said to you, you are spy. But by this, verse 15, you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you. Let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you, or else by life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. Now that, I read from the ESV translation, when they translate that custody, what really, that, that really means he's put them in prison. That's really what it means. And so in a very real sense, they are experiencing what he experienced. He was thrown into prison. They are experiencing that. Uh, they are, they, their word is being doubted as his word was being doubted. When Potiphar's wife, remember, tried to seduce him, he said, I didn't, I didn't do that. But obviously, Potiphar believed him, her and threw him in prison and so on. So his, from their perspective, he's going to test us to see if we're really spies. From J- Joseph's perspective, his test is of their loyalty to him, their loyalty to God, and their truthfulness about, about their father, Jacob. On the third day, meaning after three days in prison, 
Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. Now, as I was studying this Monday, this is my study day, and as I was studying this on Monday, I thought, all right, I know what Joseph meant when he said, for I fear God. But remember, his brothers, you know, there are 10 of them, Benjamin back with his dad and Joseph, they don't know it's his brother, but Joseph's there. So these 10 brothers, how would they have processed that? Because they don't know it's Joseph. Their assumption is that he's just another Egyptian, but he said, for I fear God, singular. Now, obviously, they need to do that. But it's, it's just intriguing. How would they have processed that? Because nobody in ancient Egypt was an atheist. That's a silly statement, but atheism wasn't the issue. It's the polytheistic gods of Egypt, or so many of those, and the, the worship of the one true and only God of, of, of Israel. But he says this. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody. Let the rest go, carry grain for the famine to your, of your household, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. So stop there for a minute. So now he's moving this first test to another level. Remember he said, you're all going to stay here. You're all going to be in prison. I'm going to let one of you go up and get your brother, and then I'll free you. But now, after three days, one of the brothers. Now, we're going to learn later on in the chapter that one brother that stays is Simeon. And so they agree to this. They, meaning the other nine, and presumably Simeon, again, we'll learn that Simeon is the one who stays behind, agree to this proposition. Now, again, Joseph is, Joseph is doing this for multiple reasons. They understand he's doing it because they think that he thinks that they are spies. Now, verse 31. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. Man, that's an extraordinary statement. This is a turning point in these brothers' lives. Their conscience is being awakened. Joseph's purpose, and I really should say purposes, Joseph's purposes for this test is working. Or you can look at it from the divine perspective. God is awakening their conscience. They are feeling the guilt of what they had done approximately 20 years earlier. So this is an extraordinary turning point in their lives and in terms of what Joseph, I'm using Joseph from this angle, in their lives and what Joseph is wanting to accomplish and then ultimately what God is wanting to accomplish. And they say one is a more. Referring to Joseph. Right. So what do they think happened? Or do they just think, He's just gone, or he's dead, or... That's a good question, because they they would not have had any information about whether he died or whatever, but they knew, because Israelites were doing that, that he had been sold into slavery. So their assumption would be one of two things. He's either still a slave somewhere, or he's dead. And so when they say he is no more, that does not necessarily mean they think he's dead, but we have have no idea what's happened to him, so he is no more. And then Joseph is saying, I know the truth. <laughs> All right, now, that, again, I, I just stress that, that, again, the importance of verse 21. We've reached an important uh, turning point, a, a tipping point in the lives of these brothers. They are feeling the guilt. And let me, let me add it, maybe add it another, at another level here. They, they are not only experiencing the guilt of what they had done, but they're sensing the justice of God. Now, you know, God isn't mentioned here, but a couple of these verbs are in the passive voice. Uh, maybe unless you're dusting off the cobwebs of your mind and trying to remember English grammar, but the, the passive voice of a verb is an actor, a subject is acting on this. 
And so they're, by the, 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 the tense of the verbs, the voice of the verbs they're using, they're sensing divine justice is being meted out here. These events aren't just happening to us. These are events that are a result of our sin, what we did to our brother Joseph. And again, about fourth, third time or fourth time, this is a monumental turning point in the narrative. What, what, what ultimately God, and certainly what Joseph wants to see, is these guys' conscience awakened, feeling the guilt, and sensing the justice of God. Then verse 22, Reuben answered, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen? And that takes us all the way back to chapter 37, verse 21, when you know, Joseph has come and here comes the dreamer, and they mock him and invent, throw him in the pit. And their attention, their initial intent was to kill him. And Reuben said, we can't kill him. We can't do this. And Joseph said, I told you not to sin against the boy. You did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for this blood. And again, Joseph, excuse me, Reuben's words are notching it up a couple of, of, of points. He's using the words of divine justice. That this is God's justice, reckoning for his blood. So, uh, you know, for the fourth, fifth time now, this, is, this is, a, is an important turning point in what God wants to happen in, in the lives and hearts of these men. And then verse 23, Moses writes, they did not know that Joseph understood them, but there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. So we learn now that Joseph, excuse me, the brothers are having this conversation in front of Joseph. They're still in the court. And they think, again, they think he's an Egyptian. They think he doesn't know their language. And so the point is Joseph does know the language, and he hears every word they're saying. And it's, it's instructive that Joseph left. Why is he weeping? Loves him? Cares about them and what's happening, and he's, he's, he's feeling all these emotions that would naturally be a part of such a seminal moment in the lives of the family. He wants to hug them and reconcile with them. I'm, I'm making this up, but I get like, and reconcile and forgive them and so on, but these guys, there's more work that needs to be done with these guys. And so he's hesitating and will not act. He returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them. Now, there's where we learn that the brother that's going to stay behind is Simeon. <clears throat> Bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and give them provisions for the journey. This was done. Again, the, the verbs are in the passive voice. So Joseph's servants are doing this. They pack all their, their animals with the grain but the money that they used to pay for the grain, Joseph wants the money put in the animal's pack too. Setting us up for the second test. Are his brothers on? Then they loaded the donkeys in verse 26 with the grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder, food at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of the sack. You know, that would be a bit of a shock. When it, you know, you, you go to get some food for your donkey and you see the money that you used to pay for all the food in your sack. And he said to his brothers, my money, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? And I haven't seen that language. I haven't seen that language before among these brothers. Now they're personalizing this. Why has God done this? And it's interesting they don't use the verb, why does God permit this? Why is God allowing this? They're saying, why has God done this? So again, I mean, this is, this is that sense of Italianic justice, which is at the heart of the justice of God. And they're sensing that. They're saying, this, God's doing this to us. Whether that you know, is the right way to, to make the statement or not is irrelevant. The guilt, it's there. What they did to you, they're saying, this is just. 
The wheels of justice have been turning, but now they've turned back. And what we did to our brother years ago is coming back. So again, this is exactly, again, from the vantage point of God, the vantage point of Joseph, exactly what they want to see happens happen to these men. So now they have a real dilemma. And it, I mean, it is a significant dilemma. Now, verse 29, when they came to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened, saying, and it's just the whole, we'll read, you can read the whole thing. Man, the Lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies, but we said, we're honest men, we've never been spies. We're 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is more, the youngest is in the, is no more, and the youngest is in the land uh, of Canaan with our father. Verse 23, then the land, man, the Lord of the land said, by this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, take grain for the famine of your household, and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me, then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. And enter the sacks, behold, every man's bundle was in his sack. Now, presumably, we're to understand that earlier it was only one of the brothers. Now, all of them unpack their, you know, they, mostly their mules, I assume. They unpack all of the goods and everything that they <clears throat> brought back, and every one of them has the money. It's still there. And when they, uh, verse uh, 35, and when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. Now, please notice their father, Jacob, is now observing all of this. And Jacob, their father, said, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. He's the one that left back in prison. And now you take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Now, here's, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not in any way being unkind to Jacob, but he's leading the pity party. It's all about me. I'm the one that's being affected by all this. I lost one of my sons and Joseph. Simeon's now in prison, and you want to take Benjamin. Well, it's me. Kind of a feeling. Then Reuben said to his father, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, you shall not go down. He shall not. My son shall not go down with you. No. So Reuben volunteers to take Benjamin down to Egypt and all that. And Jacob's adamant. No, no way. Benjamin's not leaving. And so it's Benjamin. Benjamin is his youngest. Uh, he's very important to Jacob in his older life. He's not going to let, let Benjamin go. If harm shall happen him on the journey, then you are to make, you would bring my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. I can't imagine this happening because something could happen to Benjamin. He could die on the way. All the possibilities are not going to end with Sheol. And Sheol, uh, what, what's going there is you're transliterating from Hebrew, S H E O L in Hebrew, uh, uh, vowels and, and consonants into English. And so that doesn't help us. Sometimes Sheol in the Old Testament is used for hell, a place of suffering. Most of the times, I used to have that percentage in the tip of my tongue. I don't remember it anymore. But Sheol usually in the Old Testament refers to the grave. He's going to die. He says, I'm going to die. I've lost Joseph. Simeon's in prison. And then Benjamin. No, there is no way he's leaving. So the matter is settled for now. Verse 43, uh, verse 1 of chapter 43, reminds us how the famine was severe in the land. We do not know exactly the time frame from when the guys come back from Egypt, deliver the grain, and find the money in their sacks, and what Jacob says, refusing, and this next trip now. We don't exactly know how much of a time, but the assumption is, is usually it's months, not years, it's months. Because you remember back the dreams that Joseph had when he was in, Pharaoh had, Joseph interpreted him seven years. The famine will last seven years. We do not know how long it is here. How but, many days was it to get there? Do we know? Yeah, it's, well, they would have taken the, the road along the Mediterranean Sea. It would, it would be a journey of, 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 a, of several months, probably, about two months, maybe. It depends because they're going across the desert, really. But they're up in they're up in Beersheba, and down here is Memphis. 
we're assuming that's where Joseph's court would have been because that was the capital of Egypt at that time. That would be a couple of months probably. <clears throat> so now we're reminded in verse one of chapter 43 as we shift back, the narrative reminds us there is a famine. And when they had eaten the grain that they had bought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. So there's no other place to get grain. There's no other place. They've got to go back to Egypt. Egypt is the only place to survive. Now, I want you to notice Reuben had stepped up earlier. End of chapter 42. Now, Judah steps up. One of the things that we're starting to see here, which is really important, is Judah is beginning to take leadership of the brothers. And you might remember several chapters ago in that quite horrible situation with Tamar and all that, and all of the things that happened with, that, uh, with, with his daughter-in-law. But now Judah's doing something here that's quite significant. He's taking leadership. Judah said to him, the man Solomon warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And so Judah said, Dad, remember, we can't go back to this guy without Benjamin. You can send us down there, but he's not going to sell us any more grain. The stipulation was, bring Benjamin. Then I will know you're not spies. Then I will know that you are not lying to me. If you will send our brothers with us, we will go down and buy your food. Verse 5. But if you will not send them, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Judah is evidencing leadership. He's telling his father, Dad, we have no other option here. If we're running out of food and we got to buy food and we only buy it in Egypt, for us to be able to buy food, we got to take Benjamin. Israel said, notice verse 6, Moses, the writer, uses the covenant name. In the previous section, he's Jacob, now Israel. That's the covenant name. It said, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied. The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? You have another brother? I mean, he was asking us these questions, Dad. Because Joseph, Jacob again, Israel again, doing what he, he feels sorry of himself. Why did you tell him this? Didn't you hear dad saying that? No, you can't. Okay. You never had this kind of conversation with your children, okay? Where you're defending the decision you made or whatever. Or, anyway, dad, did he ask us these questions? What we told him wasn't an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? We had no idea he was going to say that. And Judah said, is there his father? Send the boy with me. We will rise and go, that we may live and not die, that we and you and also our little ones. Meaning, we're going to get food. The only way we can survive is if we get food. This is the only way we can get food. This is the condition. Verse 9, I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, let me bear the blame forever. If we have not delayed, we would now have returned twice. There's a little dig. Dad, if you'd have let us go earlier, we'd have ran you back and forth twice. Then your father Israel said, If it must be so, then do this. Now, Jacob, Israel, covenant name, now acquiescence. You're right. But there are three things we're going to send. Here, Israel, Jacob, is also evidencing that he's over his pity party and realizes there's no other way for them to survive but to be able to buy food in Egypt. And the only condition is, I got to take, let them take Benjamin. All right, we're going to do something else. We're really going to butter this guy up. First of all, I'm in the beginning of verse 11. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man. 
Rubam, Rokhanim, Gam, Mer, Sashir, Natanam. All of the things that are grown on the edge of the Negev Desert are still grown there today. Take double the money you have. So you guys had brought the amount of money back that was in your packs. I want you to take double that amount. Carry back with you the money that you returned mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. And then thirdly, take also your brother and arise and go again to the man. And then Israel says something that evidences his faith. The pity party behind him, feeling sorry for himself is behind him. He's now thinking as the head of the clan. Remember, this is a clan. Twelve sons and their families and so on. It's a clan. We will learn a little bit later. There's a total of 70 of them. But now he's taking the role as leadership of the clan, which he should have been doing all along, and he hasn't been. May God Almighty grant you mercy for the man. So two very important items here. The name that he chooses to use for God, God Almighty, the Hebrew is El Shaddai. That's the Hebrew. El Shaddai. This is, a, this is an important, powerful name of God. It's used as a God of power, not an impotent, weak God, a God of power, God Almighty. That's why it's translated. Grant you mercy for the man. So there's this strong sense in, in Israel's mind and in his heart and in his spirituality. God owes us nothing, but he is a merciful God. So may El Shaddai grant you mercy. Israel knew his God. Israel knew that his God was a God of mercy. And so he does not appeal to God's justice. He does not appeal to God's fairness and equity. He appeals to God's mercy. You don't owe us this. We didn't earn this. But may you be merciful to us. Is that a, kind of a form of asking, recognizing you need forgiveness when you're asking for his mercy? Well, it can be. I mean, it can be multiple, multiple times where people are asking for God's mercy because of the need for forgiveness of sin or whatever. Uh, it could be, but because the, the word mercy is associated with man, with Joseph, God grant mercy through this man. I don't think he's talking about personal forgiveness. He's talking about the mercy that they will, he will meet our needs. He will not harm my son, Benjamin. He will meet our needs, understand that we are honest people. We're not trying to deceive you. I think that's what he means. Well, it's more direct. Yeah, I think so. Then him, he, Jacob, asking for mercy from God and forgiveness. I don't think that's what he asked. May he send back your other brother, meaning Simeon, and Benjamin. And as for me, I am, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. If I'm, if I'm going to be experiencing more loss, if you, you don't come back, then I'll just live with my bereavement. Again, I mean, here, and this is, this is extreme, extremely important. Verse 14, Joseph, Jacob is acting as he should act as head of the clan. Because earlier in the end of chapter 42, he was so feeling so sorry for himself and pitying himself. There's no way I'm letting Benjamin go down there. This is not going to happen. You want to send me down to Sheol? You know, all that kind of stuff. Now, he's right, well, if, that, if that's the way it's going to be, if God is going to allow my son, Benjamin, to be killed or to be lost or to stay there, whatever, I'll remain bereaved. And so, uh, this again, I, I, I look at this as another important indication that Jacob is doing what he should do as head of the clan. And so, now... The, the, in fact, the orders have been given by Jacob, the head of the clan, and the boys have their marching orders, and, and so they're going to do this. They take the gifts, they take double the money, and they'll take Benjamin. Okay? You with me, Annie? No questions. We're now about to head into the third test. We'll get to that in just a second. Verse 15, so the men took this present, meaning all the brothers, 
And they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They rose and went down to Egypt stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, bring the men into the house, slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. That's important. Why would Joseph do this? Why would he honor these men with a meal, a banquet, so to speak? Because they had done what he had asked him to do. They brought Benjamin. So he's, you see two things. What he, the first test, which was the test, are, are you guys loyal to the family, but are you men who are not spies? They brought Benjamin. So he's going to throw him a dinner. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said it is because of the money. They thought, this is the brothers now. They thought this is a trap. Joseph is setting us up to arrest us or in prison or potentially kill us. Because remember, what's, what's in their mind? All that had transpired, and remember, they found the sack of money in each one of their donkeys, the mules. And so they're thinking, <laughs> he thinks we stole all this. It's because of the money. It must have been Americans, just always thinking of money which was replaced in our sacks for the first time, that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make servants and seize our donkeys. And they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we have come down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging, lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of a sack, our money in full weight. So we were we had brought it again with us. Here's that money. And we brought other money down to buy us food. Here's the original money, got more money. We do not know who put money in our sacks. He replied, he would be this steward of Joseph. Peace to you. It's a remarkable statement. Peace to you, do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And so, again, this, this servant <laughs> is saying these words, peace be, remember, now, I, I doubt that he spoke Hebrew. I doubt that he did. As a matter of fact, I know he did. But he says, peace to you. That's the Hebrew of that is shalom. Again, even in the ancient Egyptian language, peace to you, that means things are settled. Things are all right. When you would say that to someone in the ancient world, whether you're speaking Hebrew or Aramaic or Egyptian Arabic, whatever, that means things are settled. So when he don't don't push over don't pass over that quickly, when he says peace to you, he means it's settled. Don't worry about it. You guys are all anxious about. It. Don't worry, peace peace to you. Do not be afraid. And then he interjects the statement, which is remains uh, problematic for us because we're not exactly sure. All, but he says your God and the God of your father. I didn't do this. This is a divine act. And so he says, your God did it. Not saying my God. The God, he says, your God. Because the rest recognize everybody has God. Your God did this. And the God of your father put the treasure in your sacks for you. I receive your money. And he brought Simeon out. So what this guy is doing is interjecting, listen, this is all a divine thing going on here. I don't have any idea what he meant by that personally. Possibly Joseph told him to say it this way. The text just isn't telling us that. So for me, the question, it, you know, when I was studying, I wrote this in the margin. Did they really understand what he was saying? The brother, did they really understand? Are they willing to think at that level at this point? Do they really see? Would they agree with what he's saying? And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, they washed their feet. And when he had given the donkey's father, 
They prepared the present for Joseph coming at noon. But they heard that they should eat bread there. So, and all the text is telling us is Joseph's going to come meet them at noon. It's going to be a noon meal. And they're preparing the present. Takes you back to verse 11 and verse 12. So, now, all of their anxiety, at least presumably it is, all of their anxiety is neutralized by what the servant has said to them. Now, okay, that's been neutralized. Now, it's, okay, good. Now, Joseph coming at noon. Let's prepare the gift. You know, the three things that we mentioned before. We've been presenting Benjamin, but we've also been the nuts, and the sausages, and all that stuff, and then the money. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had had with them and bowed down to him in the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father's well, he's still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. Now, I mean, you know what, prostrate, they're lying flat on the ground. I mean, this is really extraordinary. And he looked up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. And Joseph hurried out. For his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. The second time, Joseph wept. Joseph had no connections to Benjamin. Joseph knew the other brother, the other ten. He did not know Benjamin. He, had no he never played with Benjamin. They didn't play baseball together. They didn't build go-karts together. So, I mean, the, the, this, I'm, I'm trying to, and this is what sometimes we don't stop and think about this enough. The emotion that Joseph is feeling here. Did he exist? <clears throat> did he exist? Oh, you mean had he been born? Uh, yeah. Uh, no. When he had been sold, that's what he has no... Presumably, this is the first time he's ever seen Ben. And so, I mean, just think of the emotion of this. I mean, that's what I'm trying. This is a this is an amazing time for Joseph, but he's not yet ready to reveal himself. He's still not sure he can trust his brothers. He has two more tests for them. But he's wept. I mean, just this emotional, I just, I've tried to think when I was on this on Monday, I was trying to think about what would have been all the emotions going through Joseph's heart. How would he be, you know, obviously, oh, it's so wonderful to see my brothers and to see Benjamin, to, to get to know him. It's to see what God is doing and allowing all this to come. I'm going to see my family. I'm going to see my dad. That's going to be one of the objectives, as you'll see in a minute, to get his father down here. Now, just all this emotion, and he can't contain himself. So rather than exhibit it, he leaves the room, and he weeps. And the intensity of that is that word, is weep. I mean, this isn't just crying. This is, you know, weeping and crying, even in English, there's a little bit of a, there's more intensity with weeping. And so this is, this is an emotional just gushing for Jake, for Joseph. But, okay, go ahead. When he was in the prison, he interpreted those dreams right. to the he sharing the whole prison. Yeah. He, he, I don't know, you would think if you were in that situation and you could share that vision with others, that he would have empathy for people in general, and he had a soft heart. Oh, yes, I think absolutely. Joseph did have a soft heart. But the, these are, this even, this is family. This is his brothers. This is that, and, and a brother that he had no contact with. Now he, he sees him. And I want to make sure you understand what happens in verse 31, 32. And he washed his face and came out, I mean, because he'd been crying, weeping, so that's why he washed his face. And he told himself, served the food. Then he served him by himself and them by themselves. Now, this is why. In, we, we've, we have evidence of this in extra-biblical material. Egyptians considered it abominable to eat with a non-Egyptian. 
they would not do that. They would have guests in from other other parts of the world that would be coming. And so Joseph, you could say, well, Joseph could buy pit, but Joseph does not want them to yet know that he's Joseph. So he's following the strictures, the, the regimen of Egyptian social order. An Egyptian does not eat with a non-Egyptian. So they ate separately. And then there's, it's sort of like a petition between them, but they're separate rooms. And the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, but that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him. So now the, the meal is over and so on. And they sat before him, firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according. Make sure I got the right. Yeah, eat with him. Uh, according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them for Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as many as their others. Now, do you understand what's going on here? The stewards of the meal, in other words, servants of, of Joseph, in other words, arranged the brothers around the table according to their birthright, the firstborn and the youngest, according to his youth. Now, doesn't that raise a question? How would these Egyptian stewards know that? Joseph told them. So Joseph gave them the instructions, seat these men in this order. And so the men, the brothers, after they sit down and, you know, they're glass of wine is in front of them, and the meal is in front of them. Look at each other. Wow, this isn't just random seating. We're seated according to our age. Wow. Benjamin's the youngest, so he's at the end of the table. And what does Benjamin get? Five times as much as they get. Joseph is testing their jealousy. You were jealous of me when I told you years ago about those dreams that you're going to bow down to me one day. Remember all that? And that jealousy of his brothers led to them becoming bitter and hating him and throwing him in the pit, selling him ultimately to the Israelites and all that stuff. So he's testing. Do these brothers still struggle with jealousy and envy? What's the last part of verse 434 say? No, they drank and were merry with him. I don't want to burst your bubble, but the Hebrew word for merry is they became intoxicated. They're drunk because they're enjoying the meal, enjoying all the good Egyptian wine. And so... They pass test three. There's no jealousy. They're amazed that they're seated in the order of their birth. And Benjamin gets five times. Text is just made. There's no discussion about that. There's no chafing at that. There's no pushing back. They ate. They had a good time. They became intoxicated. Now, this sets us up for the fourth and final test. Okay? And now, we've got a few more minutes. Is everybody with me? Any questions you want to ask? Because I don't know how... Can you, can you run through those at the end? The four tests? Uh, yeah, yeah, if you want me to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, verse... Uh, we're now shifting into chapter 44. Let me see here. How far do I think we can get here? Um, well, we'll just... Wherever we get, we'll stop. Then he commanded that he would be Joseph, commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Oh, no. Here we go again. Put money. Oh, no. And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest. Who's the youngest? Benjamin. Benjamin with his money for the grain. 
And he did this as Joseph told him. Now remember, they had just eaten this meal and all that stuff. And so even though there's a petition separating the two, Joseph's cup is the one he was using. So this is a setup. And as soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had only a short distance from the city, which presumably is Memphis. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men. When you have overtaken them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? It is, is it not from this that my Lord drinks? And by this that he practiced divination, you have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. All right, now we've got to talk about this. First of all, obviously, from what we read in the first two verses, Joseph is organizing all of this. He's intentionally putting his silver cup that he drinks from uh, uh, regularly in the sack of Benjamin. And then, all that occurring, the guys start to make their way back to, to Canaan, the steward, the, the, the aide of Joseph, goes out, finds them, and now this extraordinary statement. Why have you repaid evil for good? What's the implication? You stole that cup. After all, Joseph, after all our Lord, you know, Joseph, all our Lord had done for you, and you steal his cup? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks? And then... The steward asked, by this that he practiced divination? It's really difficult to understand and interpret what that second part of the question means. By this that he practiced divination. By the way, by the way, what is divination? Somebody, I heard somebody say something. Witchcraft. Maybe. Well, it would be, uh, yeah, it would be a form of witchcraft in, in the sense that divination is it, it's a way of predicting the future. It's a way of discerning through the gods what the future is. And it, I mean, there are, there are multiple practices that would fall under the rubric of divination. So. This is what we don't exactly know what he means by this. But using this cup, he practices divination. Well, does Joseph practice divination? Or is this part of the ruse, part of the trickery, part of the deception to get these guys to, to own up to, to, to what they've really done and all of that? Again, I, I think because of everything we know about Joseph and everything we know about his character, by this, he practices divination as part of the ruse. It's part of the, it's part of the contrived story. And so, I mean, I, I'm comfortable with that. I don't know if you guys are all comfortable with that. But that he, Joseph, so, so think about it this way. Joseph has evidenced and, and, and a capacity of supernatural discernment. He interpreted Pharaoh's dream, right? Do you remember that? Now, granted, God, you know, and Joseph made it very clear, God's done this. I think God's done this. But for the Egyptian court and all of that, this man has supernatural discernment. So that is perhaps also a part of what the servant means. But he practices divination. He's using the words that's part of the story and the ruse and the trickery, deception to get these guys to own up. And so now, I mean, this, for these men, these brothers, this would have been a terrifying moment. <laughs> but it's the final test. They, I'm now going to go into verse 7. This, they said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servant to do such a thing. Behold, the money we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? This shows we're honest, because the money that was in our sacks the first trip we made, we brought it back to you. We didn't keep a cent of that. They're making their own case. We are honest now. Continuing verse 9, 
whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. We will also be my Lord's servants. Now, this is still the brothers speaking. So they are so confident, so certain that they're innocent. They propose a test. Which one of the servants has it? That person, that person should die. Whoever has the cup, whatever you're charging us with, that person should die. And we will then serve our Lord. Wow. I mean, I don't know about you, but they wouldn't have to say this. But they are so convinced of their innocence that they say to this emissary of Joseph, whoever has that cup, that person should be killed. And the rest of us will serve them for the rest of our lives. And in fact, we'll be their slave. We'll be his slave. He said, let it be as you say. He was found with it shall be my servant. And the rest of you shall be innocent. What has the emissary of Joseph just done? Lesson. I'm not interested in killing anybody. But the one who has the cup, he shall be the slave. The rest of you can go home. Yeah, I mean, you see that? The emissary of Joseph is being more lenient. These guys set up an extraordinary task. The one who has it, and you're charging us, we are so convinced you're wrong that the one who has it shall be killed. And the rest of us will be your slave. And the emissary says, well, come on, I'm going to make it more lenient. If I find the cup, and whosoever it is, that person will be the slave of my servant, my master. The rest of you know home. It's fascinating. Verse 11. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground. Each man opened his sack, and he searched beginning with the eldest, would be Reuben, he was the firstborn, and ending with the youngest, that would be Benjamin. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Now, if you're the brothers, and you see it's in Benjamin's sack, what had they just proposed? He should be killed! <laughs> The emissary said, no, he'll be the servant of my master for the rest of his life. So verse 13, ancient Near Eastern way of mourning and grieving, then they tore their clothes. Every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city, to Memphis, the capital where Joseph. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, I want you to note that again. When Judah and his brothers Moses is going out of it. Remember, Moses is the author of this book. Moses is going out of his way to stress Judah. If Judah had been the leader in proposing all this to his dad. And now the text is just stressing Judah. And his brothers came to Joseph's house. He was still there. It fell before him on the ground. Joseph said to them, what deed is it that you have done? Do you know that a man like me can indeed practice? Divination, I know your hearts. And Judah said, <clears throat> What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. What's he talking about? What they'd done to Joseph. Again, as Reuben had said, which we read in the last chapter, now Judah is saying, God is doing all this. This is talionic justice. This is God's justice being meted out in our lives because of what we had done. Now they don't yet, they do not know that's Joseph. And they would not understand that this Egyptian knows what he's talking about. But Judas is stepping into this is God working out his justice. And we'll accept that. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and also he in whose hand the cup has been found. God has caught us. We own up to our guilt. We're willing to be your servants, and presumably they mean be your slaves. But he, this would be Joseph, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. 
But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. Let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and my brother, the child of his old age, his brother's dead, let him let alone his left and his mother's children, and his father loves him. You said to your servant, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. He said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, or if he shall leave his father, his father would die. And he said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother come down to you, you shall not see my face again. He's just summarizing what had happened. When we went back down to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And your father said, go again, buy us a little food. He said, we cannot go down if your youngest brother goes with us. And we will go down. But we cannot see the young man's face, the man's face, without our youngest brother with us. And your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. Only left. One has left me. Surely he had torn to pieces, and I've never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, harm happens to him. You will bring me down in my gray hairs. And evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then all his life is bound up in this boy's life. As soon as he sees the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, in sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the brother and my father. He's speaking of himself. I am the pledge. If I did not hear him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. Let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that will find my father. Again, I, I wanted to read all that because Judah is just rehearsing everything that had happened and letting Joseph know a little bit of what his father had said. But look what Judah is doing. Jude is a different man than what we'd read several chapters ago. Remember that horrible thing he did with his daughter? Remember all that? And thought he was going to a prostitute and all those things. Jude is a different man. And he's willing to sacrifice himself for his younger brother. A self-sacrificial loyalty. Judas become a leader. Judah has become a man who is speaking for the family. And Judah is appealing. He does not know it's Joseph yet. He's appealing to the human conscience of this leader. You know what's going to happen. This will kill my dad. Can you have sympathy and empathy for my dad? I will be his substitute. Benjamin, I'll be his substitute. Choose me. Now, if you want to know what happens, you got to come back next time. <laughs> Judah is rising to the top. This is a very important character of Judah. And we'll see why that's important near the end of the book, chapter 49. All right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the character study of Joseph. We are bringing to a conclusion, and we will conclude next week. It's extraordinary. But we also see a lot of other things going on. We see the character of Judah. Judah is a different man. That whole experience with Tamar, with his, his lifestyle and his lust and everything exposed, and he, he said those words, she's much better than I. That was a changing moment, a transformational moment in Judah's life. And we're starting to see these character traits come to the surface. We'll talk about later on in the book. Lord, we also see that these brothers are owning up to their guilt. These brothers are recognizing that you are very much at work in these circumstances. This is your talionic justice being meted out in their lives. They're acknowledging their guilt. They're acknowledging the overwhelming guilt that they feel. They do not know yet that this is Joseph but you have been working through these circumstances to transform them. And that's another important part of this narrative that we've been studying together. 
So, Lord, thank you for your mercy. Jacob had said to his, perhaps El Shaddai will be merciful to us. And indeed, as we will see next week, you are very merciful to the children of Jacob and even to Jacob himself. So this is a very important study, and I just pray that you'll pierce our hearts with application of truth in each one of our lives. Thank you for being with each one of us, to be your representatives and a strong men of faith who know you, who love you, and represent you. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen. See you next week, guys.